Good morning, church family, everyone online. Uh, my name is Dante. Um, I thank you so much for, for having me here today. Um, I'm going to be answering for you the, the, the question on what Black Lives Matter means to me. Um, before I do that, though, I would like to take an opportunity to, uh, to share some of my thoughts and beliefs with you. So first, I believe that one of the gifts that God has gifted humankind is free will. I believe that we have the, the free will to accept God as our creator, and to seek the Holy Spirit as our guidance. I believe we have the free will to deny God. I believe we have the free will to do everything in between. I believe that there are truths, positive truths and negative truths, about the history of the Christian church and its role in slavery. I believe that there are positive and negative truths about the Christian church today. I believe that we have the free will to ignore the negative and the positive truths um, of the history of the church. And I believe that we have the, the free will to deny that positive or negative truths about the church affect the world that we live in today. But I also believe that we have the free will to acknowledge our past, to acknowledge our present, and to work towards a better future. A future that looks more like the way God intended before we fell, before we were corrupted by sin, and before we chose to create these racial hierarchies. I believe we have the free will to see the good in one another, to love one another, to correct each other with love, to hold each other accountable with love, to hold ourselves accountable with love, because sometimes we forget to love ourselves. We have the free will to put ourselves in check, remember that we're human, and let God do the judging. So two things I want to clarify. First, I'm just a person with an opinion. What I'm sharing with you isn't truth. It's my truth. There may be some truth to it, but I want God's truth, and that's what I pray for all of us, is God's truth. Amen. Second, when I answer the question of what Black Lives Matter means to me, I'm answering the statement that, of, of Black Lives Matter, not the movement. That would be a completely different conversation. So I'm, ask, or I'm answering the question, what does Black Lives Matter, the statement, mean to me? The statement that Black Lives Matter to me means that I can be who I am without fear of not being accepted. Upon the abolition of slavery, black people weren't slaves, but they were worthless. And in order to be worth something or valued as someone that can contribute anything, they had to assimilate. In other words, they had to act white. Black people had to shift their culture, change who they were. They were taken and forced to work on unfamiliar lands. And they changed who they were to make those who had owned them comfortable with their God-given free will. The statement that Black Lives Matter to me means that we start acknowledging every single person who has had a hand in where we are today. And I want to speak specifically to black women who are perceived as angry or standoffish, who aren't taken seriously when it comes to their own health in the healthcare services, who are paid the least or the lowest income wages amongst white men, white women, and black men. We need to start acknowledging women of our history, like Claudette Colvin, Aurelia Browder, Geneva Johnson, Viola White, Katie Wingfield, Susie McDonald, Epsi Worthy, Mary Louise Smith Ware, these are eight women 
who sat down at the front of the bus before Rosa Parks. And I'm sure that not many of us know those names. Why? Because Rosa Parks had a fair skin color. So the civil rights movement put her up because that's what white people were comfortable with. We need to start acknowledging and loving black women regardless of the color of their skin, light or dark. The statement that black lives matter to me means that as black people, we stop using a word that was rooted in hatred, a word that was used to oppress us, to uplift and empower each other. And I know that a lot of my peers don't agree with me on that. And that's okay. Again, this is just my opinion. The statement that black lives matter to me means that we are no longer ignorant to the things that we may not understand in one another. My body experiences trauma that isn't always my own, and sometimes I don't get that myself. But the trauma of my parents, the trauma of their parents, the trauma of their parents, and so on and so forth is passed down. And if you don't experience trauma in that way, you don't get it, and that's okay. It's easy to say that black people need to get over it, <laughs> but it's hard to get over something that lives in me. But while I acknowledge that there is pain that lives in me, I know that God lives in me too. And so, Black Lives Matter means a million things to a million different people. But Black Lives Matter means that Jesus sees and Jesus loves us, despite the things that we as humans recognize as different in one another. John 8, verse 15 to 16, Jesus says, You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one, but when I do judge, my decisions are true. Jesus is the man that we love. Jesus is the man that we follow. Jesus is the man that died for all of us. And so, if we claim to live our lives like Jesus, who are we to, to dictate who is of value and who is not? We have the free will to choose to see the goodness in one another, to choose to put ourselves in check, remember that we're human, and let God do the judging. To love each other deeply and unconditionally as God did, as God does. Thank you. The only way I have the courage to stand here today and speak on this topic is because my friend Julie was here first and our worship team, gifted and, and God-oriented, my friend and brother Winslow and his son Dante with conviction and, and artistry and pride and truth, not just your truth, but truth. You all stood here first. Uh, we get to live together and lead together and learn together, and what a gift that is. And by the way, uh, 
You might have sensed it from the cadence of his voice and from his passion, but in addition to everything else in his life, Dante is an artist. And uh, he has written and spoken and recorded and sung on, on these issues. And we're going to share some of those things with you. You'll find them on our YouTube channel this week. And if you want to linger a little bit after the service, uh, we'll even find one and, and play one. You, you need to hear what God is doing in his life. Well, today we're going to talk about those hard issues, about racism, about slavery, slavery in the Bible and slavery in history. Uh, of course, I'm not a racist. <laughs> uh, I'm colorblind, no prejudice in me. I acknowledge the reality of sin. I, I acknowledge the concept of depravity. You might see that definition in your notes. If you are joining us online or if you are here, you can find links to the notes in the uh, in the email that goes out in advance of our message, or you can find them on our website. But that word depravity, uh, depravity is a word most often associated with a white man named John Calvin, one of the Reformation teachers, gifted leader. But actually, it was written about and conceived a thousand years earlier by a man named Augustine. And as it happens, Augustine was African. Though through all the centuries, people would tend to paint him as white. He certainly was not. When he talked about depravity, what he meant is that sin has a way of getting into all the nooks and crannies of our lives. It gets into my words. It gets into my thoughts. It gets into my feelings. It infects our sex lives, our financial lives, our anger lives, our relationship lives. But of course, it actually doesn't affect our racial lives doesn't affect our, our ethnic identity. Of course, it, it wouldn't impact us there. Or so we like to think, right? I grew up in a church that was almost all white. I mean, just curious in the room, how many, how many of you had that experience? My, my church was almost all white. We never talked about the fact that we were all white. In fact, we would sing songs like, Red and yellow, black and white, all are precious in His sight. But that's not what we looked like when we gathered. We looked like, well, what was the most defining truth of our generation was the statement of a sociologist who said, 11 o'clock Sunday morning is the most racially divided hour on the continent. And that was our truth. If I cut myself, we could go to the local pharmacy, we could get band-aids, and we usually got the flesh-colored ones. Guess which color was flesh-colored? Never stop to think about what it would be like to put one of those band-aids on when flesh color wasn't your color. Same was true with that big box of Crayola crayons. You remember the one, 64 different colors, sharpener built into the side? They had a color in there, it was called flesh-colored. I think now they call it peach, right? Red and yellow, black and peach. I never really thought that we were fascinated as everybody was with the book of Revelation, but I never really thought about the way that it pictured heaven with this image that every tribe, every nation, every people, every language, all the races would be standing there in unison before the throne of God. I wonder if they have a pharmacy in heaven and you... Ask for flesh-colored band-aids. What, what color would you get? My grandfather, 
my mom's dad, a lovely, beautiful, faithful, church-going man. I can remember how surprised I was when I told him with great excitement that Karina and I had just bought our first car, a used Honda Civic. I remember how disappointed he was. How could I buy something Japanese? They weren't flesh-colored. As I grew up, the GTA started to change. I got to know a lot of people, people from all over the world. I heard stories about people getting stopped in their car late at night. Why? Because their flesh wasn't flesh-colored. I realized most of the time I never really thought about the color of my skin. There was a never a day that went by in their lives when they weren't aware of the color of theirs. And folks, if you've ever wondered what the term white privilege means, that's what it means. We just never stop to think about it. I say all of that because we come this morning to that week in our series. We're going to ask a ton of hard questions. Does Christianity encourage racism? Is the Bible pro-slavery? All of it gets at the deeper undercurrent of the issue around racial injustice. And as Dante has pointed out, this is absolutely core to the gospel. And it's a subject that's filled with pain. As you see in the notes, the, the pain is historic. You can't address the topic of racism without addressing the bitter backdrop of slavery in North America. And yes, I say North America, not just the U.S., because the truth is our cultures are so intertwined now. Our consumption of media is so intertwined that that backdrop, it looms over us and not just them. The pain's historic. The pain is present. You can't address the issue of racial injustice without acknowledging the needs of those who have been most deeply marginalized in our world, and it's still going on. The pain is in the church over and over and over again. The church has aided and embed, enabled the, the enslavement of people, of Africans, the internment of Asians, the forced removal of indigenous children into residential schools. The pain is here. The pain's in the world. Black lives matter. To our brothers and sisters, to those who have been crying out and feel like nobody is hearing, at the very least, should we not be able to say, we hear you? We hear you, brothers and sisters. We want to be with you. We, we want to figure out new rhythms in our lives that honor you, rhythms that that carry with them justice for all those that we have lost. That scripture from 1 Corinthians 12, if one member suffers, we all suffer. If one part is honored, we all rejoice. We want to be with you in the suffering. This is a time for full-throated lament, but not just there. We we want to be with you in a new day of honor. Let it come. So to be clear then, because maybe it just doesn't get said often enough or loudly enough, doesn't get said from the pulpits the way it ought to be, we denounce it. We denounce the senseless, brutal slayings of people like George, George Floyd and that, that terrible long litany of others. 
a long history of, of abuse and discrimination of black and brown bodies. And I say bodies because that's what they must have been. If they were actually people, human beings created in the image of God, bearing the thumbprint of their creator in their lives, we couldn't perpetrate the kind of atrocities that have taken place. And for those of us who claim to follow Jesus, there really is no excuse for getting this wrong. But we have. And for those who claim an allegiance to the gospel of Jesus Christ, it means that, that yes, we will stand for something. But that also necessarily means there are things that we must stand against. And this has got to be one of them. 1969, a civil rights activist, a man named James Foreman, wrote a manifesto. He nailed it on the door of a church. Manifesto called for the restructuring of society, for amends and reparations to be made for the damage that, that centuries of slavery had imposed. Now, a Christian scholar, a man named Duke Kwan, said that the most extraordinary part of that manifesto isn't just what it said. It's the fact that it wasn't addressed to the government at all. It was addressed to the church. It was nailed on the door of a church. It was 400 years ago, well, 401 years now, that the first African slaves were kidnapped and deposited on the shores of Jamestown. But the same time that those pilgrims that we celebrate in the U.S. were landing on Plymouth Rock. And over and over and over again, the white church of Jesus in those days aided and abetted the enslavement of Africans. And we may want to dismiss it as history. We may want to relegate it to the annals of the United States. This is Canada after all. But as I said before, our cultures are so in, intertwined that there really is no separating them on an issue like this. And even if you could do so, you can't ignore our own sad history of the way that, that we have relegated Asians to internment camps, crooked land deals with Canada's indigenous peoples, residential schools. It was an Anglican bishop who issued an edict to clarify that just because a slave in Canada was baptized, came to know Jesus, it didn't mean that they were free from slavery. Maybe the most famous of all the Puritan preachers in the past centuries was a man named Cotton Mather. He taught that, that becoming Christians would make slaves better slaves, and it was sinful pride for a slave to want to be set free. George Whitfield, probably the most prominent preacher in the, in the revival that's known as the Great Awakening, taught that slavery was God-ordained and that bondage would lead to the salvation of heathen Africans. Even well on into the 19th and the 20th centuries, the two pro most prominent white evangelists were Dwight L. Moody and Billy Sunday. They proclaimed the gospel to audiences that were radically segregated so that, that nobody who was an African would sit next to somebody who was white and hear the news that Jesus Christ had died for every human being. Didn't happen. And so the white church, in, in Duke Kwan's word, signed the moral permission slip to subjugate, enslave, 
and humiliate millions of human beings. Not just them, but their descendants with, with Jim Crow laws and, and lynchings. And Listen, this is, this is a hard subject. I thought maybe what we could do is come at it by addressing three of the key questions. The first, what is it the Bible says about slavery? Because I have a sneaking suspicion that some of us are embarrassed by the Bible on this subject, and I don't want you to be embarrassed. I want you to look at it as fuel for justice. So what does the Bible say about slavery? Second, what is it the Bible actually says about race and about racism and about racial justice? And then thirdly, I'd love to reflect with you before we venture out into the parking lot and into our small groups and into conversation about what it means for us. What is the call of God on us in this generation as his people, as the church? That's kind of a roadmap. If it sounds long, it is long. So as I've said before, if you're joining us online, you can get up and move around. If you're here in the building, you can... You can still get up and stretch if you need to. It's okay. Let's start by diving into the first question. What is it the Bible says about slavery? Because one of the brutal ironies of the whole conflict is that all the battles in the church and in parliaments and on the actual fields of warfare on both sides of the Atlantic, people on the pro-slavery side and the anti-slavery side both grounded their justification from the Bible. Preachers who are on the pro-slavery side would cite texts like 1 Peter 2.18. Peter says, slaves, submit yourself to your masters. They would cite texts like the ones that Paul gave to the, the churches in Ephesus and in Colossians. And you have those in your notes. You can see them on the screen. Pro-slavery preachers would, would lift those little words out and would say, it's right there in the Bible, slaves, be obedient. So clearly the Bible is pro-slavery. At the same time, the great moral force behind the abolition movement, the, the movement to, to get rid of slavery in the world, that movement was overwhelmingly Christian. William Wilberforce in England and, and John Wesley and Frederick Douglas on this side of the Atlantic, they would cite things like the golden rule, the command to love your neighbor as yourself as the rallying cry, as a prophetic demand for justice. The conflict was so striking that Abraham Lincoln, Lincoln in one of the probably the most profound theological analyses of the world that any U.S. president has ever offered, said this in his second inaugural address. He said, both read the same Bible, both pray to the same God, and each invokes his aid to the death of the other. And all of it, it kind of leaves us, we've inherited this feeling that you can twist the Bible into saying anything that you want. You can make it say anything that you want it to say. So people that claim that they're morally guided by the Bible, shouldn't we be suspicious of them? I don't believe that's the case. But I do believe that when you handle the Bible 
It's not just the Bible that's sacred. The way that you handle it needs to be sacred. We need to handle it well. This is a complex question. And so let me give you what I think has been a very helpful framework for looking at the Bible, particularly on this question and other complicated ones like this. And if, if you want to read a little bit further, you'll find this referenced in your notes, um, and you'll find it uh, as a resource for your study groups during the course of the week. This is a book written by a New Testament scholar. His name is William Webb. It's called Slaves, Women, and Homosexuals. What he's doing is working through three of those really current, really hard-to-navigate questions in the Bible, not just in society. How do we navigate our own sacred text? William Webb says it's important to understand the nature of the Bible. The Bible's not abstract. The Bible is not just some heavenly blueprint for a universal utopia. The Bible was written, he says, by real people in a real culture who were facing real problems and it often commanded the audience to make limited but workable changes that point in the direction of God's ultimate love and justice for human flourishing. I know you didn't get all that, but, but you can rewind it on YouTube and get it again. Here's his point. In the ancient world, there were systems, uh, patriarchy, slavery, polygamy, monarchy. They were universal. The Bible was written, and when it was written, all of those cultures were rooted in slavery. Canaanite, Egyptian, Ethiopian, Assyrian, Babylonian, Roman, Greek, they all, they all were rooted in slavery. In Rome, we know that between a third and a half of everybody living in the city was a slave. An economic system without slavery just didn't exist. But if you look at the Bible set against that backdrop, what you will see is that it constantly, consistently undermined the power of slave owners and worked towards the dismantling of the whole system of slavery. Let me give you examples. You have these in your notes. In the world of the ancient Near East, there was no provision ever for slaves to be released. But in the Bible, a whole chapter, Leviticus 20, 25, talks about the need to release, to set free those workers, servants who had been in bondage, to do it every seven years. The whole system would reset. You went home. In the ancient Near East, there's no provision to, to be given to a slave, to provide for their welfare when they'd been released. Again, the Bible, it comes up with this really exciting new code in Deuteronomy 20.15 that said, when you free them, be generous, provide for their needs and the needs of their family. See how this is, this is dismantling the system from inside? In the ancient Near East, slave owners could punish a slave at any time for any reason, any way that they wanted to. It was the Bible, Exodus 21, that put severe restrictions on how this could happen and held masters accountable if they violated those restrictions. In the ancient world, slaves weren't given time off. But the Bible, Deuteronomy 20.16, Deuteronomy 31, offers these generous allotments of time off for servants and workers, including the Sabbath. The Sabbath was for everyone, 
including slaves. In the ancient world, runaway slaves, fugitives, carried a bounty with them. And nations, they would make treaties with other nations. The Code of Hammurabi, one of the most famous ones, imposed the death sentence to anyone who harbored a runaway slave. By contrast, Deuteronomy 23 said that the nation of Israel should serve as a sanctuary, a place of safety for any runaway slave. That's why when the Bible talks about hospitality for the stranger, the widow, the orphan, the slave, there is something so radically countercultural going on there that I think we don't see it because we set it against a different backdrop entirely. Webb goes on to say that in addition to those things that are undermining slavery from within, you have within the Bible a remarkable number of, he calls them seedbed texts. And what he means is that within those texts are the seeds that are so contrary to the whole system of slavery itself that eventually the whole thing would come crumbling down. They would lead to liberation and freedom. For example, and Dante, you hit a bunch of these. Only Israel's Bible, only the Bible taught that every single human being, slave or free, was made in the image of God and carried intrinsic worth. That had no parallel anywhere that we know of in the ancient world. Only Israel's Bible taught that every human being was called to exercise dominion, to create value. The stewardship of the earth was a creation responsibility given to Adam and Eve, who, by the way, if they were anything, they were African, but given to Adam and Eve and shared by all humanity. The Bible had within it the prophetic requirement for humanity to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly before God and before each other. The Bible teaches that every human being is the object of the love of God and is the recipient of the grace that's given through Jesus' sacrificial death, every human being. And then you get to the Apostle Paul, who writes these remarkable words. Julie, you started the service with these words. I'm so glad you did. Galatians 3.28, by the way, is like the John 3.16 of the second half of the New Testament. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. When the people of the ancient world looked at the Bible, they were just struck by this. When you see what the Bible is teaching from the perspective of the ancient world, the whole thing would look subversive. The whole thing would look incredibly counter-revolutionary to the world. When we look back 2,000 years later, maybe we don't see that. And the reason we don't see that is because 2,000 years later, those same teachings from the Bible have so completely and ultimately undermined this, the, the, the system of slavery and promoted human equality that is now outlawed in every civilized nation on the planet. Let me give you an example, though, of how this works. Uh, I thought this was fascinating when I read it. There's an exhibition that's been going on in Washington, D.C. for the past couple of years at, at, their, at their museum. They have a museum of the Bible in Washington. Did you know that? I didn't know that, actually. Been to Washington, wasn't there long enough to find it. 
at the Museum of the Bible in Washington, one of their current exhibits is the Slave Bible. A lot of people haven't heard of this. The Slave Bible was produced in the UK. It was published in 1808. It was produced for the sole purpose of converting Africans to Christianity and making them better slaves. In creating the Slave Bible, the publishers decided they would remove from the Bible every part that would prompt a slave to seek their own freedom. So they took out the whole book of Exodus. Anybody know why they would take the book of Exodus out? Of course you do, right? Exodus is all about slaves being freed from captivity. Publishers said we can't let slaves read that or they might think God was going to do it again. So they took that out of the slave Bible. They took out the whole book of Revelation because it talks about God's ultimate triumph and about justice for humanity. He's going to wipe away every tear. That would be bad, so they took that out. They took out every mention of the words liberty or freedom in the Bible. Last week, we looked briefly at, at Paul's letter to, to the Corinth in 1 Corinthians. One of Paul's primary arguments about radical unity was this, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. He said, we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. They took that out. That would be a problem. In fact, there are 1,189 chapters in the Bible. There are only 232 in the slave Bible. To make the Bible acceptable for the purpose of enslaving humanity, they had to take 80% of the chapters out of it. People read the Bible and, and find a manifesto to endorse slavery. I, I don't know what Bible they're reading. The sad reality is is this, there are more people, raw numbers, in slavery today than there have ever been. Even though it's been outlawed in every civilized nation on the planet, even though it's illegal, there is just this profound injustice in so many places, and we know it particularly affects the poor and people of color. We still have a lot of work to do. But our Bible ought to be the thing that compels us because our Bible taken as a whole has always been subversive to the system of slavery. Let's move to the next question. What is it the Bible says, if anything, about racism and about racial injustice? Because, you know, the history of slavery particularly as we know it in North America, actually involves two different issues. It's not just one. One was slavery itself, as brutal as that history is, but the other is racism. Because we know that even in the sections of the country that were anti-slavery, even in Canada, which was the great escape route for slaves in bondage in, in the U.S., very few people who were of white color we're wrestling with what the Bible said about racism. You know, in the ancient world, world people, they get enslaved for all kinds of reasons. Often they were enslaved because they were in debt and they couldn't get out. Sometimes they were enslaved 
when their side of a war lost the conflict and all the people were taken into slavery. Sometimes slavery was a form of punishment because they didn't have prisons and, and a jail system the way that we do. But in the ancient world, by and large, people were not enslaved because of their race, not because of the color of their skin. Slavery wasn't race-based. Rome had lots of slaves. Many of them are from what we now know today as Germany or France. Most of those slaves were whiter than their masters. So I started thinking, you know, if, if those who were promoting biblically-based slavery were really trying to be faithful to the to the text as they distorted them but understood them in the Bible. And that actually would have meant that whites went into slavery and people of color were the masters. Because that was the reality in the ancient world. But it turns out that the people didn't really want that biblical slavery as distorted as it was at all. It was a slavery filled with racism and that's what made it even more insidious. The greatest failure of the church in those days and probably still today is not just the failure to preach against slaver, slavery. It was the failure of the church to preach against racism. If the church had stood united against the evil of racism, slavery would have been stopped in its tracks right away. It just would have collapsed. Instead, it took the bloodiest civil war in, in U.S. history and part of the tragic evil consequences of what happened there is that racism continued to go marching on unchecked in so-called civil society. Let's think about the subject of racism. In the ancient world, it was thought that certain people were designated by their nature to be slaves. They might not have thought it was based on color. They just said, that's who you were in society. The Bible gives this radically different view of humanity where everybody shares the imago Dei, the image of God. And people are made to be one. How is it they become one? They become one in Christ through the power of his death and resurrection. I want to give you just two verses to hold on to as you unpack this idea. They're both from the book of Acts. Both are incredibly subversive. Both are so powerful. The first one is from Acts chapter 17. Acts 17, 26. If this looks old-fashioned, it's because we're, we're looking at it from the King James Version. And God hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth. God hath made of one blood all the nations of men. In the early 19th century, this was called the doctrine of one-bloodism. Say that. One bloodism. And the idea is that God only created one race, the human race. We share a common origin. One race, one blood. And the idea was further that all of us can be traced back to, to Adam, and that had profound implications. It would mean that every human being has common dignity, common worth, common value. And it would mean further that racism is not only wrong and not just sinful, it actually is blasphemy because it demeans the image of God in another human being. It's not just an offense against them, it's the offense against the one who created them and said, I have made them just a little bit like me. This was so revolutionary that slavers... Uh, 
the preachers who tried to, to preach the pro-slavery doctrine had to come up with the most odd, bizarre ideas to go on with their teaching. So here's an example of one. It was called pre-Adamism. Say that, pre-Adamism. Preachers were actually teaching that there must have been, before Adam, some, either, some kind of quasi-human or subhuman creation by God. We don't know about it. It's not mentioned in Scripture, but they just imagined it. Why? Because all of these slave races could not have come from Adam. They must have come from a pre-Adam. And then something really bizarre and incredibly hateful happened. The very doctrine of, of evolution, which they rejected with such vehement fever, they held on to this one idea. We were descended from apes. Maybe they're apes. How vicious and brutal. You've probably heard the story of Noah and the ark. And maybe you had little, I don't know, nursery decorations with all the animals getting on the boat. Here's a part of the story that not a lot of people remember. Genesis 9, there's this passage where Noah pronounces prophetic judgment on his own son. More than 1,500 years later, that passage gets lifted up by white preachers inaccurately, diabolically, as a text that teaches the inferiority of certain races. It was the descendants of Ham, Noah's son who are the subservient slave races of the earth. God hath made of one blood all the nations of men. One bloodism. It, it changed things a lot. Here's the other verse. It comes also from the book of Acts. This is Acts 11, verse 26. You have to hear me out on this one because it looks like it has nothing to do with anything right now. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Let's unpack that a little bit because it doesn't look very stunning at first, but let me tell you why it absolutely is. There were three great cosmopolitan cities in the ancient world. The first was Rome, the, the center of military and political power. The second was Alexandria with its great library. The third was Antioch. Initially, after the resurrection of Jesus, the followers of Jesus were all Jewish. They were all part of the little nation of Israel. They shared this new gospel of Jesus with other Jewish people. It was all within the tribe. Antioch is the first place that they started telling Gentiles, non-Jewish people, the rest of the world, about Jesus, where suddenly they remember what Jesus has said, go tell everybody now. Well, Antioch was the place where they first started doing that and where non-Jewish people started believing. And the book of Acts tells their story. Jews and Gentiles, they, they started loving each other and helping each other and, and eating together and serving together and, and learning from each other, giving generously to each other, becoming friends. Nothing like this had ever happened before. You understand that up until now, basically every religion in the world had been a tribal religion, and it's still largely so today. The vast majority of Buddhists are Asian. 
The vast majority of Muslims are Arabic or South Asian. The vast majority of the practicers of what could be called the family of Hindu religions are Indian, South Asian. When you think of the great religions of the world, you don't think of a massive spectrum of humanity following any of them except Christianity. Why is it that that happened? Even at the very beginning of the Christian movement, it was understood by those looking in on it as a Jewish sect. Antioch is where everything changed. It's unprecedented. In fact, we're told, and this is so amazing, Acts 13, verse 1. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, and it names them. There was Barnabas and Simeon called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean who'd been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. Why did they give us these names? Barnabas from Cyprus in the Mediterranean. Simeon from Niger in sub-Saharan Africa. Lucius from Cyrene near the north coast of Africa. Menea, the rich kid who was raised with one of the sons of Herod in the Middle East. Saul from Tarsus in Asia Minor. In other words, here's the leadership team in Antioch. A Mediterranean guy, two Africans, a rich Middle Easterner, and somebody from Asia Minor. And we think we invented diversity. What in the world are those guys doing in the same room, let alone loving and caring for and submitting to and serving one another? People in Antioch saw this going on. They realized that this Jesus movement, this wasn't just some sect within Judaism. This is like nothing they had ever seen before. And they had to come up with a name for this because none of the names seemed to apply. And so they came up for the first time with the name that you bear. It was in Antioch that they were first called Christians. A little bit like Jesus, little Christ. Why? Because after all, it was Jesus who prayed to his father that he would make all his followers one. It's Jesus who said that the signature of the authenticity of his disciples was that they would be one, just as the Father and the Son and the Spirit are one, that his followers would be united in love. And they were beginning to look just a little bit like that. They were Christians. And it happens in Antioch. You know, that word is only used a couple of times in the New Testament, the word Christian. But I hope you understand that what gave rise to the word that, that describes you and me was a community, not that would exclude people based on human categories, but that that would include people in an unprecedented way, wherever they were from, however God had created them. This was the first community in human history where prejudices and stereotyping and racial hostility and in-group privilege, all of this was just demolished in the name and the power and in the presence of a tidal wave of love that began with Jesus and just came sweeping over them. That was Antioch. That's what it meant to be Christian. Let's move towards wrapping it up. Again, you're welcome to stand a little bit, stretch if you need to. But I think we need to at least ask the question and then provide the opportunity throughout the course of the coming weeks 
um, to listen and learn from each other. What does this mean for our calling as a church? I, I hope that at the very least, for those of you who are peach-colored, it means that you'll commit to a humble posture of listening and learning. And if you want to do that, um, we provided in the list a few books that you might want to look at. This one is the one that's probably <clears throat> the most noted. Number one bestseller, New York Times, White Fragility. Robin D'Angelo, widely interviewed, well worth reading. Not a Christian book. It doesn't require that you agree with all of it, but you really ought to read it. But if you want something that I think will, will warm your soul and break it, visceral, eloquent, beautiful, this one's not on the list, I apologize. Ta-Nehisi Coates. Um, if ever there was going to be a successor to James Baldwin in our culture, I think this is probably him. Why should you read this? Because you need to hear the story of this man and the generation he represents. But I also put it in front of you, particularly our young people, because this is the guy who writes the Black Panther comics. <laughs> and he's brilliant. He's brilliant. And then if you're looking for a guide for the series as a whole, Confronting Christianity, uh, this is one of the many topics that we're addressing. And uh, you'll find this a good provocative way of digging deeper into some of these issues. What does it mean for us as a church? It means, doesn't it, that, that if anything, the GTA needs the Antioch church. Uh, among the many things, the accusations that get hurled at the church, I would love for them to say, you found some real Christians there, an Antioch kind of church. We have this unprecedented opportunity to build a church that is as diverse as the kingdom of God. Jesus said, go into all the world. Well, God has brought all the world here. You know, I, I looked it up this week. The largest single ethnic group in the GTA is East Asian, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, and then South Asian, then black and Filipino and Latin American and West Indian and Arabic. And they're all here. And they've been here for a while. Yeah. They're in the room and they're joining us online. They're all here. This is where we live. Over half the people that live in our city, Mississauga, were not born in Canada, which means I think there's a hunger there for community and connection and relationship and meaning. Come here. Antioch. Everybody's welcome. All of those populations, by the way, are, are predicted to grow. Asian population is going to grow. South Asian, the Middle Eastern population, all predicted to grow. The government also predicts that, that we're going to get older and older, but not so for the church. We get to be younger and stronger and humbler and more generous and more holy and more loving, and we get to do that like Antioch. The churches define a mono-ethnic a mono church as any church where 80% or more of the people are from the same ethnic group. The vast majority, overwhelming majority of all Protestant churches fit that description. 80% or more from one ethnic group. I did some math this week. It was hard, it took me a while, but our leadership team here at the church, 
those who've been invited and invested in leadership, elders, deacons, officers, staff, we're 33% black. We're 27% white. 17% South Asian. 17% East Asian. And 6% Mennonite. <laughs> Maybe a little too much in that bottom category, but that's, that's Sheldon and I. If you want a short form for, for a call, let me, let me give it to you here. I, I pray that we can be the kind of church that can move people from racism to gracism. That's not my word. Uh, that's a word from a man named uh, David Anderson. He's a, he's a powerful black preacher working in Chicago. Gracism is the extension of favor to other people based on the grace of God not any other human category. I want to be a gracist. I, I want to repent of whatever that old sin of racism may still be doing in me, wherever it has a toehold in me, wherever I intentionally or blindly use power and privilege in a way that excludes other people instead of including them, in any way that grasps rather than kneels in humility. That's, that's gracism. Anderson, he writes, you know, when we cling to division, we align ourselves with the kingdom of darkness led by Satan, the ultimate deceiver. deceiver. That's the way of division. Unity, on the other hand, has a way of aligning us with the truth of God and with Christ as the head of the church. In just a minute, we're going to invite our our worship team to the stage, and, and we're going to sing something together. I, I can't wait. I heard them rehearse it. Beautiful. But as they're coming and as they're singing, I hope that you can let your imagination run wild for a minute. Can you imagine a church that is as beautiful and diverse and mosaic and barrier-breaking as the kingdom itself? Can you imagine where year after year we get to see and meet and welcome more and more people from more and more cultures who speak more and more languages and reflect more and more the beauty and the richness of God who created each one of them? And as we gather together to be able to be enriched by all of that great kaleidoscope of worship and understanding. Can you imagine a church where the people who do have money and power and privilege, instead of living lives of relentless self-absorption, learn how to give it away for the support of others. Can you imagine that God who hath made all people from one blood looks down at a little church in Mississauga and says, well done, it's happened again. It's Antioch all over again. I've caught myself once or twice saying that around here we're colorblind. And when we look at you, we don't see the color of your skin. Uh, what an awful thing to say, really. Um, we shouldn't be colorblind. We're not trying to be blind to the reality of the world that God has made. What we should be is exuberant about color. 
rejoicing in the vast canvas of everything that God has made in the world. But ripping away or painting over, pretending we don't see that spectrum is a rejection of God's design. I hope you will join me in praying that by God's grace and power at work in our lives and the lives of our leaders and our citizens and our churches, we can create new rhythms Rhythms that honor all life and rhythms that carry with them justice for those that we have lost. May it be so. Let's pray. Let's pray. God, thank you that we get to live where we live. Thank you that you've created human beings every tribe and tongue and color and people and culture and nation. And you brought them all here. Thank you, Lord. But God, forgive us. God, forgive us when we have made a catastrophe out of what you created to be so beautiful. And we repent of our blindness and our selfishness and our racial attitudes and our behaviors, everything that excludes and misuses what you've given to us. God, make us Christians so that the world around us could look at this little community, could see our lives in the neighborhood, could see us at work and at school and say, we just don't know what to make of these people. We don't know what to call them. May it be so, Lord. We pray it in the matchless name of our own Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.